You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for healthcare professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist, a hematologist, and an LLS volunteer. And I want to thank you all so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we'll be discussing metapoetic stem cell transplantation, including an overview of the goals of transplantation, advances, clinical trials, disparities and barriers in access, research-based information on expanding access, and also resources for healthcare professionals. We're delighted to be joined by Dr. Jeffrey Oletta, who is the Senior Vice President of Patient Outcomes and Experience at the National Marrow Donor Program, Be The Match, and Chief Scientific Director of CIBMTR, which is the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research, National Marrow Donor Program, and Be The Match. Dr. Oletta, Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Ken. I really appreciate the invite. If you would give us an overview in terms of transplant, there's autologous and allogeneic, and reduced intensity allogeneic. Sure. So there are two forms of stem cell transplant. You either get your own stem cells, which is autologous, or you get someone else's stem cells, which are allogeneic. And really, autotransplant is used to consolidate uh, disease remission. So in other words, either you have a malignancy that if you were to get the high-dose chemotherapy without the stem cell rescue, you would die of pancytopenia or infection. So literally, an autotransplant is give high-dose, usually myeloblative chemotherapy, and then give the patient stem cells back in order to support their hematopoietic system. Allogeneic stem cell transplant is you want to use another person's either hematopoietic system or the immune system derived from hematopoiesis. And that can be used for several different things. In pediatrics, we use another person's stem cells uh, in order to treat metabolic disorders like Hurler syndrome, for example. Uh, obviously, we use another allogeneic stem cell transplant. A disease indication would be leukemia. And in that case, we're using someone else's cells or immune cells to attack the residual cancer clone in the recipient's body. So we know that cancer basically is many processes associated with carcinogenesis, but in a simplistic layman's uh, way of thinking, either blow through the stop sign at the inter intersection in terms of cell growth, or you fake out your immune system. And so allogeneic stem cell transplant is using someone else's immune system uh, because the patient's immune system has been faked out by the cancer. Uh, and then lastly, our, our non-malignant disease indications, right? So sickle cell anemia, for example, uh, can be cured through stem cell transplant. And certainly now gene therapy is arising as a potential alternative. Excellent. I want to ask just for some data for everyone listening, for myself too, how many allo transplants are being done a year? What is in broad terms, but survival? A great resource for the audience is the Center for International blood and marrow transplant research website, the CIBMTR web website. So all I have to do is literally Google CIBMTR summary slides. 
And what you'll get are a lot of answers to your questions, Ken. So uh, what we do is we publish every year a deck of slides that go over common disease indications, overall survival by disease and the different types of donor types that are emerging. And so it is a complex question because you, it's hard to lump all the diseases into one. But to give a general sense, there are a little under 10,000 allogeneic stem cell transplants performed in America every year. And again, we're able to capture that through our HRSA contract. And so we're able to get that information. And then, you know, with regards to overall survival, again, it's a little bit disease specific, but in 2023, with regards to the top three disease indications, AML, ALL, and, and mild dysplasia, we're hitting about 60% overall survival. And so with regards to that, uh, that's that's pretty good, but certainly obviously has room for improvement. No doubt about it. So I'll share just an observation. I remember when I was a medical resident, so this goes back to the 1980s, and I was at Yale at the time, but one of the attendings uh, in Hemoc had gone out to Seattle and spent three months and came back. It was really telling us about transplant. And candidly, I remember sitting there thinking to myself, this sounds brutal because he was really talking at the time about graft-versus-host disease and side effects. And it's now 40 years later. So I, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the things that have changed and what are some of the things that maybe haven't changed? where we still need to make some more progress. Great. Thanks, Ken. That's a pretty complex question because uh, it has to do with the evolution of the stem cell transplant field. But we've come a very long way. Back when you were discussing your personal experience during your training till now in 2023, there's been many changes. Obviously, the first and foremost is improvement in overall survival for patients. What you were alluding to with regards to graft-versus-host disease, for example, where the donor cells attack tissue in the recipient's body, that obviously is a life-threatening condition as are other complications such as infection, namely opportunistic infections, and then also with regards to organ dysfunction. So the key reason, or several reasons rather, that got us to where we are in 2023 is our scientific knowledge has improved. So we now have the ability to discern which patients are best candidates for transplants based upon their organ function, for example. But also our ability to target cancers has improved dramatically with stem cell transplant. And what I mean by that is uh, our conditioning regimens have changed. And it used to be that we took a sledgehammer and the result that you just mentioned in terms of the brutality of transplant. And now that has somewhat changed in terms of what we call reduced intensity conditioning regimens. So we're not using necessarily a sledgehammer for those patients who can't necessarily receive a myeloablative or that sledgehammer conditioning regimen. And then the other issue is supportive care has dramatically improved. So our ability to fight infections, to diagnose infections, and to support patients through the transplant process and also prevent complications like graft-versus-host disease have improved over time. So first, I want to thank you. You sent some great papers from the National Marrow Donor Program and the match. So and it looks like I mean, the survival curves have increased each decade. Obviously, the listeners don't have the data in front of them, but I wanted to ask you to, to say a little bit more about that. 
And also for patients who do die after transplant, what are the causes of death now? Is it the transplant? Is it the disease? Yeah, so what we know in terms of an overall survival after transplant, so the top three disease indications for an allogeneic stem cell transplant where you're getting someone else's stem cells are acute lymphoblastic leukemia, acute myeloid leukemia, and myelodysplastic syndrome. And what we know now is that when we compare the overall survival of those three conditions with respect to the early 60s, now all the way in the 90s, and now in the in the 2000s, we have had a dramatic improvement in overall survival in the big three, those three disease indications for an allo transplant. And again, lots of that have to do with we've actually improved our ability to support patients through transplant. I think that's probably a very substantial reason for it. But other reasons are we're able to identify patients to get to transplant earlier. So if we're able to get patients to transplant early, we know that they have an improved outcome after transplant, particularly in the context of a malignant disease. So that gets into access to transplant. We still have a lot to improve upon in terms of our access to transplant, but nonetheless, we're able to diagnose patients earlier, assess their disease in terms of something called measurable residual disease. In other words, be able to discern disease in a transplant patient prior to transplant and know that that's a higher risk of malignant disease relapse after transplant. So our toolbox has improved in terms of diagnostically as well. So again, diagnostic improvements, getting patients to transplant earlier, and then also supporting them through transplant in terms of novel antimicrobial therapy or being able to support their uh, organ function. Those are the really the three key elements that have improved that overall survival over time. And I wanna go through each of those three just a little bit choosing patients, I wrote down, but used to be, again, there was an age cutoff. What's happened in terms of age and also comorbidities? So with regards to age, we know that age alone should not be a barrier to transplant. It used to be where people, if they were above 55 years of age, they were not considered a transplant candidate. So that's where it gets into our ability to support patients through a stem cell transplant has improved because it's not just age. It's a holistic assessment of a patient. And so we know that actually age 55 and greater, even 65 and greater, are the most common age group uh, requiring a stem cell transplant right now. And a lot of that has to do with the older we get, the more prone we are to acute myeloid leukemia and to myelodysplasia. So that's age. Age is no longer a barrier. So access is an issue that is something that really motivates me personally, but also with regards to the field, because we have much to do in terms of making sure that the playing field is equal for all patients, regardless of their need. You talked about in your co-authors, you have a paper on disparities. You talked about personal barriers and also about structural barriers. Tell us more about that. What are some examples? Yeah, that's a great question. So there are many barriers to transplant and kind of the way to think about it is grouping it into buckets. I think the first bucket is our patient-related barriers. So for example, their disease. If the disease takes off or is not responsive to chemotherapy prior to transplant, then that obviously is a barrier based upon disease. 
but also socioeconomic factors for the patient, right? If, if they can't get in a car in order to get to the transplant center, it's really going to be difficult in order for them to think about having a good outcome after transplant because the care after transplant is equally as important as obviously the care prior to transplant. So the, again, patient-related factors. There are physician-related factors. So you mentioned that you're a community oncologist. And not to put you on spot, Ken, but a lot of community oncologists don't know the transplant indications. And they are so busy, they see about 20 to 30 patients a day. And Mr. Jones comes in with myelodysplasia, and they don't necessarily know the society recommendations or guidelines for referral to transplant. So that's an education issue we can talk about a little bit later. And then lastly, you mentioned about the program issues or barriers. So, and those have to do with a little bit of a couple of things. Number one, our implicit biases, you know, potentially, our structural biases, our systemic racism issues. And those are the most entrenched of all problems that we as a society really need to stop think about what we're doing and really leverage all of our resources to invest into people's health and to invest into the citizens of the United States health. Because when we don't do that, all of those issues in terms of socioeconomic disparities and social determinants of health, they are a major anchor on our healthcare system. And the only way to pull up that anchor, get it on the boat and make sure that boat sails across the water is by addressing the anchor. We have to address these in a systematic way that not only reduces access barriers, but improves outcome disparities in patients. Thank you for sharing that. And I like the analogy of an anchor. It really makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you, if we, even to get more granular, if you could, what may be my intrinsic biases or doctors like myself that I may not even be aware of? in terms of transplant. When we enter that room, right? As a physician, you knock on the door and you enter into a different world, right? Every room has its own world. And when you enter into the world of a patient who is of different ethnicity than you, there's a difference that's discerned immediately. There's also a status issue that needs to be addressed. And that's where it gets into, we as physicians have to be able to address these things in a non-threatening manner and be able to not cause or use an implicit bias against the patient. We can't go into that encounter and, and think that that person won't understand what their disease is. And we can't go in that encounter and make assumptions in terms of their ability to understand or feel or even get transportation because by doing that, we automatically change that playing field. We become a distrust factor in terms of that. But those are the types of things that we have to be able to take a step back and realize that it's our obligation as physicians to make sure that we are able to provide the care at all levels of society. So transplant hopefully is a curative form of therapy for patients with blood cancers. Do community oncologists like myself, practicing oncologists, do we under-refer certain groups of patients? Yeah, for sure. And again, it has to do with, I think, implicit bias, particularly for patients of ethnic diverse backgrounds, 
I think that we feel that it would be too taxing for them to go through a transplant. They couldn't afford that transplant. It would cause more issues in terms of their family impact if they went to transplant or a transplant center. And so those are the things, Ken, that really kind of have to be put aside in order to get patients to transplant sooner. Because as I mentioned earlier, those patients are the ones who have the best outcomes. And so to be able to know, as a referring physician, we don't know everything, right? I mean, no physician knows everything and we can always call a friend, which are consulting colleagues. And so I think that's the key is to understand personal limitations, professional limitations, and reach out and get answers when things aren't known in terms of transplant disease indications. Your expertise in your position is outcomes and patient experience. So along those lines, outcomes for non-white groups, patients, people, sounds like outcomes may be different. And as you've really dissected this, what are the reasons why outcomes may not be as good? Yeah, so I think you're spot on. We know in the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research, which is uh, basically the data resource for the cell therapy ecosystem, we have what's called an observational database that's contract uh, through HRSA. And so we're able to capture data on all allogeneic stem cell transplants that are performed in America. And that data has allowed us to literally uh, see the improvement that I mentioned overall survival, but also collect data, obviously, on patients, in particular, social determinants of health and, and background. And uh, what we found is that whether you're a pediatric patient or an adult patient, those patients who come from low socioeconomic status definitely have less of a uh, outcome than people with private insurance, for example, or coming from higher socioeconomic status backgrounds. So the reasons for that, pretty complex probably. It's this yarn of social determinants of health, uh, this ball of yarn. So we know that when a patient comes to us, that 80% of their health is already decided outside of that medical encounter. Uh, that has to do with their education and their socioeconomic status, and then also their community. And so it, it really gets back into Maslow's pyramid of needs that we all learned about in terms of psychology. You know, you can't get to the self-actualization at the top of the pyramid if your physiologic needs aren't taken care of. So a lot of times I think we in America say, oh, we have all these social programs. That's all these people need to do is go down the block to get or fill out this online application. Well, if you don't have food on your table, if you're worried about your safety, if you don't have a home, if you don't have access to internet, it's really hard to access these social programs. And so that's where that anchor of social determinants of health comes into play. We did an analysis looking at Medicaid coverage across the 50 states and, and published that recently through the Access Initiative, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon. But we are the United States of America by name only in certain things, right? When we looked across the Medicaid coverage for stem cell transplant and certain cell therapies like CAR T-cells, we found that uh, it's a potpourri of coverage across the states. And so therefore, we also found out that reimbursement for travel or for meals is greatly disparate across the United States. So some states, it's $25 a day per diem for food. For other states, it's $90. Some states have 
$25 for lodging. Other states have $55 a day for lodging. So again, if you're coming from that low socioeconomic status, that physiologic need, it's really difficult to conceive how these patients are able to come to follow up after transplant when their per diem reimbursements for Medicaid is so restrictive. So that ball of yarn, that anchor of social determinants of health, that really plays in terms of a patient's ability to get services, to physically make it to certain places, to, to clinic, and then also to be able to have the social support in terms of getting to clinic, for example. As I'm listening, I'm thinking to myself of these as barriers and also as opportunities too. And it's reminding me as I go knock on the door and open the door to keep all this not necessarily in the back of my mind, but also in the front of my mind too. So I thank you for that. Based on your research, what are some ways to expand access to transplant? Yeah, so that's a great question. So one of the ways is to actually educate. I think awareness and education are key. So I alluded to the ACCESS initiative. So the ACCESS initiative is a collaborative between the American Society of Transplantation and Cellular Therapy and the NMDP. And what that is, is a collaborative to address access barriers and outcome disparities in uh, patients of need. What we have are three focus committees. One's awareness, the other one is racial inequity, and the third is poverty. And so I think looking at those three areas, Ken, is really the awareness factor. In other words, having uh, updated guidelines for community physicians to know indications for transplant, being able to leverage resources. So here at the NMDP, we have the ability to provide the typing kits. In other words, the HLA typing, the address label that's needed in terms of matching between donor and recipient. And we can actually provide that to community physicians to bridge that time between HLA matching and then getting the, to referral. So taking advantage of services like that through the NMDP. And then uh, lastly is, is a lot of reach out. Like for example, this podcast, a great example. So community physicians need CME credits and being able to provide that education, being able to update resources like up to date, for example, that we all go to in terms of a question that we have with a clinical encounter. So I think that awareness factor is key to address. Jeff, I wanna ask you broadly, as we did talk a little bit about where we've been. So where are we and where are we going? Yeah, great question. So it's really exciting right now to be in uh, the field of cell therapy. And the reason for that excitement is because of the technology and the ability to start using cell and gene therapy for patients. So we talked about stem cell transplant. Obviously, it's no free ride. There are many complications associated with it, but there are good outcomes that occur as well. And so now we're in the age of being able to take cells out of the body and re-educate them either to target the cancer in the body or to target infections like viruses in the body. And so that cell therapy field is really an integral part of stem cell transplant, both from a disease control standpoint, but also with regards to supportive care, another elevated way of improving outcomes based upon cell therapies. Say more, if you would, in terms of the relationship between CAR-T and stem cell transplant. How are they the same? How are they different? What's second line? What's third line? 
Uh, I'd love some examples. Yeah, great question. So chimeric antigen receptor T cells. So they were first used actually in a pediatric patient with precursor B cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And those were the CD19 directed CAR T cells. So that uh, protein expression on the ALL cells. So where have CAR T cells gone now? Well, now we're using CAR T cells for uh, multiple myeloma and diffuse large B cell lymphoma in adults. We're also thinking about targeting acute myeloid leukemia through CAR T cells as well, which are in earlier stage trials. So the question now is when to use them and uh, what they use them for. So right now, the CAR T cells are used in a couple different ways. First, it could be used as a bridge to transplants. In other words, that measurable residual disease that I mentioned earlier, if that's detected, you have a worse outcome after transplant in the context of leukemia, for example. So CAR T cells can be used to reduce disease burden prior to transplant in order to get a transplant. They could also potentially be a supplement to transplant. In other words, if the patient does not meet the criteria to transplant, perhaps they can get CAR T cells instead. And so those are kind of the two ways that people are currently using CAR T cells right now. And again, I think what we're going to see is an evolution of understanding of the best way to use CAR T cells through various clinical trials that are underway as well. And the patient experience, again, obviously there's a variety of experiences, but what can a patient expect in terms of that they're about to go into something that's a terrible experience or that most patients are doing pretty well with it? Again, a very broad question. Yeah, but it's actually a great question because I think that we go back to that knocking on the door encounter, right? We as physicians enter that door and everybody looks at us, but we have a whole team behind us, don't we, right? We have nurses, we have social workers, we have apheresis coordinators in terms of stem cell collection. We have the cell therapy lab uh, behind us. So we are a holistic representation of an amazing amount of resources behind us. And each of those team members has a critical role in terms of the outcome of a stem cell transplant patient. So literally, I tried to give that message to patients. Uh, in other words, it's not just me. You have a whole team behind you that wants you to succeed. And we know that that patient experience, it's a lonely experience and it could be also anxiety provoking, right? Particularly if you're referred, right? You're used to your oncology team, you develop your relationship, you know the nurse who accesses your port, and now you have to go to the transplant team, which is a whole different set of teams uh, or team members. And so it gets into a very anxiety invoking experience and a lonely experience. And so again, I'm fortunate to work at Nationwide Children's Hospital here in Columbus, Ohio, and they have an amazing resource for patients, occupational therapists, massage therapists, educational therapists, and the list goes on. And those people probably see the patient more than I do, truthfully, and establish rapport and relationships with those kids and their families that I don't really even get to that point. But that's my point, though. That is the message that we can provide to patients at the time of stem cell transplant is, yes, there are risks. Yes, there are life-threatening complications. But we are here holistically as your team to support you through. So, by the way, I think obviously it applies to all of oncology and how lucky we are, fortunate 
as oncologists, hematologists to, to have that backup. And, and it's part of what makes it bearable for people to get through all this and hopefully to be well. Jeff, I have one other question before we go. I signed up and I gave a mouth swab or whatever. It had to be 20 years ago. <laughs> Where am I in the... <laughs> In the order of things. So first and foremost, Ken, thank you for doing that. Anybody who's willing to be a donor uh, has an altruistic experience about them, right? I mean, you know, this gets into philosophical conversations or why we are on this planet, but one of the core beliefs that I have is to impact the lives of others, right? We all have the ability to do that in large or small ways. And that right there is a testament to the human spirit in terms of someone willing to step up swab the inside of their mouth and send it off and then be willing to serve as a donor for something they don't even know. That's the beauty of the National Marrow Donor Program and the donor registry is you see that every day and that's literally our true north is the ability to impact lives. So to answer your question, you know, people can go to our website and also get a kit that gets sent to them by mail. They literally swab the inside of their cheek a couple of times put the Q-tip back into the package and send it off to us. And what happens is roughly about one in 500 donors actually get the call in terms of undergoing a workup and potentially serving as a life-saving resource for another human being. So that's the process. And again, by going to the NMDP website, you can learn a little bit more about it. Excellent. Thank you. So as we wrap up today, I just want to say what an enjoyable and interesting uh, conversation and how happy I was to be here personally to participate. And I have to say, you know, it's going to remind me uh, after talking today, honestly, as I knock on the door and go in to really think about some of the issues that we talked about in terms of access and implicit biases and a lot of other important things related to the practice of medicine outside of the medicine itself. I also want to uh, thank uh, Jeff as well, because I learned some new analogies today. One was thinking about the ball of yarn and the second about anchors. So thank you for all that. Oh, thank you, Ken. And I want to thank all of you for listening uh, for this very, very informative uh, uh, episode and for listening of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities podcasts and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org slash CE. For any questions or to refer a patient to LLS, please contact our information resource center by calling 800 955 4572. Information specialists provide personalized one on one support to help patients learn about disease, uh, treatment, financial, and other support resources. LLS also provides other resources for patients, survivors, and their families, including a series of podcasts that can be found at lls.org/slash support. I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. And we look forward to you joining us on future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. 
Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time, 